Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. I love the fact that we sang the song together this morning, uh, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. And you know, one of the interesting things is, this is one of the most beloved Christmas carols, but it wasn't written about Christmas. Isaac Watts wrote this somewhere in the early 1700s. And it's actually drawn from Psalm 98. And it's about the second coming of the Lord. I thought it was interesting as I was reading and doing some research that as a teenager, Isaac Watts was pretty frustrated with church. I dare say that that's probably true for many of us at some point. He was really frustrated, and he was dissatisfied with the, get this, the pathetic songs, the psalms that were being sung in church. And so he was complaining continually about these senseless lyrics. His dad finally got tired of it. Imagine this, dads. He gets tired of it, and he said, Well then, young man, why don't you give us something better to sing? So at the age of 18, Isaac Watts did exactly what his father said. And for the next couple of years, every Sunday, he had written a new hymn to be sung in church. Now think about that. That's amazing. Some 20 years later, he was putting together a collection of hymns based on the book of Psalms. And he comes to Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm has gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy. Sing psalms. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre. With a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. As I said, Psalm 98 is really a psalm about the second coming of the Lord. We sing joy to the world. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds in the field, and he says, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. So this Sunday and next Sunday, we're looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, John 1, 14, that the word becomes flesh. So why is the incarnation good news? I have the joy this morning of looking at it from the human perspective. Next Sunday, Matt will be looking at the incarnation from God's perspective. Why is this good news for us from a human perspective? Number one, it gives us genuine hope in our hopelessness. It gives us hope, number two, in our helplessness. Number three, there's hope for hurting, troubled families and troubled marriages. And there's hope for a world that has been broken and shattered by sin. One in the fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin is this next slide. It's that our hope is not a wish, it is not a dream, our hope is a person. I love what Paul writes to the young preacher Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and Jesus Christ, who is our hope. I love that. It's a reminder that we're not trusting in some idea, some philosophy. We're trusting in a person. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through 4, actually, uh, it's amazing. This is one sentence. Now, my brain thinks in compound, complex sentences, which is unbelievable. But listen to this one sentence, which is in four word, uh, verses. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact rep uh, representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, and has inherited a more excellent name than they. God incarnate in human flesh comes. And the key to all of this, which has been a part of what we have encouraged you to be reading from John 1, verses 1 through 14, this whole key to things is that the Word became flesh. Jesus Christ, the living Word, becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the miracle of the incarnation, and this is another one of the blanks to fill in in your bulletin, 
The miracle of the incarnation is that God, who is truly divine, took on flesh and became truly human in order to redeem mankind. Now, I will tell you right now, my brain is not big enough. I am not smart enough to be able to process all of this and put this together. Other than I know God's word is true, that Jesus Christ was truly divine and he was truly human. He is the God-man. And he does that to redeem us. And there's a real sense, I believe, in which the gospel needs to become flesh in us. We need him to become flesh in us so that Jesus can be flesh to the world through us. Do you realize that you and I are the only Bible that the most of the world will ever read? I want you to think about that. Oh, you call yourself a Christian, so this is what Christians will look like. Or is it, huh, you call yourself a Christian, so this is what Christians look like. To me, it's a sobering thing that I, that I need to constantly remind myself that I am the only Bible that many people are ever going to read, and they are going to gauge Christianity by what they see in my life and by what they hear coming out of my mouth. That's sobering to me. I want us in these next few moments to look at the incarnation from a human perspective. And, and there's really four revelations, I believe. There's probably more, but there's four that I'm going to give you today. Four revelations of God that we see in the lineage of Christ. If you have your Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 1. Most of us skip over Matthew chapter 1 because it starts out, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we hear the word genealogy and we go, oh, no. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere that we're not to get caught up in endless genealogy? Yeah, it does. But there's something miraculous that is taking place here in these first 16 verses. And it's showing the greatness of God the mercy of God, the compassion of God. In our adult class this morning, a part of what we talked about in some of these patches, passages, it's not so much, yes, it gives us historic background, but what it's really doing is reveal, revealing the nature and the purposes of God. And you look at the genealogy of Christ, first of all, you really see the forgiveness of God in spite of sin. We'll talk more in a bit, but when you look at verse 6, it identifies David, King David. And born to him is Solomon. Solomon. 
He's the result of an, ins an adulterous, murderous relationship. We'll say more about that in a minute. We see the mercy of God. You look at verse 5, you find people like Ruth, who is a Moabitess. You find Rahab. Now, unless you've studied the Old Testament, you don't know much about Rahab. I'll tell you a little bit more. But you see the mercy of God. God never condones sin. He never glosses it over. But he's glorified as he extends mercy to people. And let's be honest. It's because of his mercy that all of us are here today that we are still breathing air and walking on God's good earth. Because none of us deserve this. Do you realize that it was the mercy of God, this is another fill in the blank for you, it was the mercy of God that put Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Because if they would have taken and eaten of the tree of life, they would have been trapped in their sin for eternity. Now we won't take the time this morning to, to look at this, but you have it in your notes in the bulletin. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, that's what God says. Let us put them out lest they eat of the tree of life. They'd already eaten of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes are opened, and now they are trapped in their sin. And they need a Savior. Had they eaten of the tree of life, they would have lived forever and hopelessly trapped in that sin. Now, that's, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. But I want us to see that God's mercy and grace is at work in all of these things that are profoundly amazing. See, extending mercy... Is a never, it's never a lowering of God's standards. If mercy accomplishes anything, it's that the one who receives mercy will, or at least should, recognize how much mercy has been extended to them. There's a third thing that we're going to see in all of this, is that the greatness in, of God's heart of love. John 3.16, for God so, what? Say it. Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. I love the last phrase of that. I, I have to restrain myself because this is a message in and of itself. But the literal meaning of that last phrase, shall have everlasting life, literally means shall have the life of the eternal one. Now let that sink in for a while. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has confessed our sins, received his forgiveness, and have been brought out of darkness into his glorious light. As 1 John says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. And the word children there in 1 John 3 means genetic. That's the word that's used in the Greek. 
Now, ladies, how many of you go to a grocery store and at some time or another you've bought a generic product? We've all bought generic products. What are generic, generic products? They're the cheap substitute of the real thing, right? We are not generic children of God. We are genetic children of God. It's the miracle of the new birth that we now have the life of the eternal one within us. What a glorious revelation that is. An expression of God's greatness and his heart of his love. There's a fourth thing that we're going to see in this. It's the hope of God. Each one of us can be included and can play a part in God's eternal plan and purpose. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what's gone wrong in your life. There is a place for you and me in God. Now, I want us to, to just in these next couple of moments walk through and highlight some things from Matthew chapter 1. Thinking about God's eternal purpose in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his inclusion of all of these people, which gives hope to us as we are included into God's eternal work. Boy, you think your family is messed up. Just look at what Jesus has to deal with. And it's working backwards uh, if, we, if we start to work backwards from Joseph, and just we're going to skip down to uh, verse 16 in just a moment. Understand that, that God's purpose is to prove that by nature of his lineage, Jesus has the legal right to the throne of David. So that's what Matthew is trying to accomplish. Another one of your fill-in-the-blanks here is that God's plan was to include all mankind into the lineage of Christ so that he would truly be Lord and Savior of all. Now look at verse 16. Interesting thing. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. His line comes through Solomon son of King David. Now, Joseph's a remarkable man, and, and I wish that I had the time to really just delve into some of the amazing characters of this man. But he's remarkable. Remember that in the mindset of society, Mary's pregnancy was evidence of her unfaithfulness to Joseph. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? She was not unfaithful at all. But here is Joseph, man of faithfulness, man who was led by God through four dreams, which were really profound and spectacular. He has, finds his lineage through Solomon. Look at verse 7. talks about Solomon. Jesse, to Jesse was born David the king, and David was born... And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 2 Samuel chapter 11, you read about David's sin. 
I always think it's significant that in that 2 Samuel passage, it begins by saying, now at a time when kings go out to war, David's walking on his roof. See, David wasn't in the place that he needed to be as a king. He needed to be with his army. You know the story as he sees Bathsheba, calls to her, brings her, commits adultery with her. Suddenly, she discovers she is pregnant with David's child. And in an effort to cover his sin, he brings her husband home from the front, gets him drunk, tries to send him home to his wife to sleep with his wife so he can tell the public it's actually Uriah's baby, not mine. We know the end of the story. Uriah is a man of integrity and he sleeps on the king's doorstep because his comrades are out in the field at war. David ultimately hands him a message to send to the commander, which is his death sentence. God brings judgment on that child. David takes Bathsheba, marries her, but the child that was conceived dies. Now here's the amazing thing when you read through that passage is that when Bathsheba becomes pregnant, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, this is the second child. It says, God loved Solomon. Not only did God love Solomon, but he allows him to be in the lineage of Christ. Quite literally, Solomon is a product of what started out as an unholy relationship conceived in lust that resulted in murder. And yet God's grace, his forgiveness, is truly amazing. When you think of Solomon, most of you do not think about the history of his birth. But I think about Solomon and I think of the hope we have in Christ in the midst of our hopelessness and our helplessness. And I think of God's grace. And let's be honest. There are some of us here today, some among us, who our marriages didn't start out in a holy way. There were things that were done that were strictly against God's commandment. And yet when there's genuine repentance, brokenness, God's forgiveness comes. And God's eternal purposes can still be accomplished in us. If you'll permit me, let me just take a little parenthesis parenthesis here and just tell you something of myself, which some of you know and others of you don't. I go through these passages of Scripture and I'm overwhelmed by the grace of God. I think of my mother, who was a child conceived out of wedlock, into a family. From all the research we have done, there is apparently no real spirituality at all. Research that I've done, 
Janice has helped me with some of this. We found obituaries of these family members. There is no continuity in faith. It was evident that when somebody died, they got whatever preacher they could to say a few words for the service. But they were not Christian people, and yet God, in his mercy and his grace, arranges for my mother to be adopted into the family that ultimately adopted her, that were godly people. Because he knew that 1947 was going to come around, and so would I, and my mother would not be married. Most of you are far too young to appreciate what life was like in the culture of the 1950s and the 19, up until the middle 60s when culture just went crazy. But the shame and the disgrace for a girl to become pregnant and she's not married. Now the reality is she didn't get pregnant by herself. But the shame and disgrace that came on a, a young woman. I'm so thankful that the people I call my grandparents loved my mom and they loved me. And if ever there should have been anyone disqualified from ministry, it's me. Born to a mother who was a child born out of wedlock, who in turn gives birth to a child born out of wedlock. I have no idea who my biological father, well, I do too. I, I, ancestry DNA in, does some enlightening things. And I think I may have found a half-sister, but that's another story for another day. My mother loved it when Janice and I would sing. But when I'd get up to preach, she would walk out. And I'd say, Mom, why? And she'd always say, it bothers me. It bothers me. She could never reconcile the, the circumstances of my birth with the fact that God would put his hand on me and call me into ministry. She's with the Lord now, so it's all good with Mom. And she sees God's eternal purposes. But you see, I look through these passages with scriptures, and for so many of us, the guilt and the shame of the past seems so overwhelming. How could God ever bless my life? How could God ever use any part of my life for his eternal purposes? Well, just look at David. Look at Solomon. For some of us, we say, my family is so messed up. How could God ever bless us? Look at the genealogy of Christ. David, the son of Jesse. David's grandfather was a man by the name of Obed. Obed was the son of Boaz and Ruth. Boy, you talk about a love story. That's Ruth and Boaz. They're just mentioned in verse 5. You read through the genealogy, you don't get much. But when you go back into the Old Testament and you read their story, you see the mercy and the grace of God. 
because Ruth is a Moabitess. She's a part of the heritage of Moab. Moab was the son of Lot. By his daughter. You know, after Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt, the two daughters say, hey, our father's line's going to die out. We got to do something. Boy, you talk about cold and calculating and twisted. These daughters agree they're going to get their dad drunk and then they're going to take turns and go in. The one one night and the other the next night and they're going to go in and they're going to get pregnant by their dad. And the one child that was born, his name was Moab. They were cursed. And because of this unholy conception, the children of Israel were forbidden to intermarry with the Moabites. Again, you know, I look at my background and I see the amazing grace of God. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, the illegitimate child was not allowed to attend church, the synagogue, for ten generations. Praise God that in Jesus Christ, the guilt and the curse have been broken. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, that whole sacrificial system, it just covered the sins of the people. When Adam and Eve sinned, two things happened. Sin came into the world, and with that came death and a curse. The sacrificial system only addressed the sin and covered it for one year. But when Jesus Christ came, he became sin for us. He became a curse for us. He not only covered the sin, he took it away, and he became a curse for us so it could be broken. Oh, church, I want to encourage your heart. If you're here today and you feel like you're living under a cloud of guilt and shame, understand that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Boy, you talk about good news. To take that sin away and to break the curse off of your life. That would have been a good time for somebody to say glory to God, but you missed it. Wow. Here's Ruth the Moabitess. God does an amazing thing as he brings them together. The life of Ruth is just another example of God's forgiveness, as well as an illustration of God's grace in including Gentiles into the plan of salvation. And we haven't even started to talk about Boaz yet. Do you know who his mom was? Hey, teenage guys, how would you feel like? What would it feel like to you? You're going to school and they say, oh, who's your mom? And everybody knows her as the prostitute from Shipshawana. I live in Topeka, so I had to use Shipshawana. Forgive me, I almost said Emma Town, but then. <sighs> Don't laugh, it just makes me worse. But you get the point. She is Rahab 
the harlot of Jericho. That's how she is described in Scripture. Now, her story is amazing in itself as well, and I don't really have time to go into this. Joshua chapter 2, she is the one that hides the spies. I love the writings of Arthur W. Pink. It was so insightful to me as I was reading through his book, Gleanings from Joshua, and he goes at great length to talk about Rahab and the fact that she hides the spies under flax. And he maintains that she had ceased from her harlotry, and yet she still carried that label. And we could talk about the fact that it was only the most industrious of women that worked with the flax because it was very hard work and it was very hard on the hands and would not be good for a soft, supple body to please a clientele. So Arthur W. Pink says, the coming of the spies merely allowed an opportunity for her to exercise and demonstrate what had gone on in her life. There are some scholars who believe that uh, Rahab's husband, Solomon, may have been one of the spies who came. We don't know. But we do know that Boaz becomes a very successful man, and he is a relative. He becomes a picture of the kinsman redeemer who has the right to redeem Ruth. What a picture of Christ, our kinsman redeemer, who has come in the flesh to redeem his bride. What a glorious picture. Well, let's, let's just wrap some of this up here. The last one. Look at Judah. Verses 2, verses 3. Oh, my goodness. Judah. Remember what his name means? What's it, what does the name Judah mean? Praise. Fourth son of Jacob. His mother was Leah. Remember her? Genesis 29. Joseph, uh, Jacob loves who? Rachel, the older sister. Remember what it said about Leah? Oh, when you read your Bible, pay attention to the words. It said she had weak eyes, which was kind of a nice way of saying <clears throat> she wasn't the most attractive. I could think of something else that I would say, but moving right along. What a marriage this is. Jacob and Leah, because he is tricked by his father-in-law, Laban. Jacob thinks he's married Rachel, who is cute and beautiful. Verse 17 in Genesis 29. But instead he wakes up in the morning with the ugly older sister. All I can think of is that on their wedding night, the light must have been really poor... Okay, moving right along. Sorry. Look at verse 3 in Matthew 1. To Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now you talk about messed up families. This is really messed up. Because Tamar is his daughter-in-law. The whole account, the whole sordid affair is in Genesis 38. And Tamar is a, Cana a Canaan, almost said Canadian. 
I'm hurrying in and I'm getting my mix all talked up here. She is a Canaanite. Now you talk about heathen of heathens. That was the Canaanites. I mean, the Moabites were terrible, but the Canaanites, that's a whole different story. She's a Canaanite. She's married to Judah's son. Only thing is, he dies and doesn't give her any children. So according to the Jewish system, the next oldest son of Judah is supposed to marry her and raise up children to his dead brother. Guess what? Son number two dies. And then another son gets killed because of what he does there, but that's another sordid story. And Judah doesn't do what he's supposed to do. So guess what Tamar does? She dresses up like a prostitute. And Judah goes in to the prostitute. Now that is a whole other story. What in the world was he doing going into a prostitute? And it's interesting. Genesis 38 is nestled between Genesis 37 and Genesis 29. And you're going, duh. But that's right in the middle of the story of Joseph. And it just profoundly demonstrates the difference in character in these two men. She tricks him. And she gets pregnant by her father-in-law and has twin boys. And it's through the line of Perez that we trace the lineage of Jesus. Now, why do we look at all of this? Once again, shame and disgrace is found throughout the lineage of Christ. But God's grace is covering sin. When we come to him in repentance and faith, God's grace covers our sin. We still have to deal with the consequences. But there is forgiveness. As I look at this, the Word becoming flesh, and as I look through this passage of Scripture and I see how God in miraculous ways includes all of humanity into salvation, it is a powerful thing to me. And as I look at my life, I look at the lives of other people that are so often troubled and broken, gives me encouragement. You know what? God never makes a mistake. And we're, we're going to bring this together here quickly. In at least five incidences here in Matthew chapter 1, and my hope is that even though I've, I've just kind of skimmed over the surface from about twenty or 30,000 feet, you're going to go back through this yourself. And you're going to begin to read this again. You're going to go back into the Old Testament and read for yourselves. We see immorality, public shame, and open sin found in the lives of people who were in and are in the direct lineage of Christ. There's no wonder some critics have questioned the validity of Jesus as the Christ. But here's the glorious thing. In the incarnation, now Jews and Gentiles both can identify with Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, and as their Lord. Folks, that's good news. 
And the family tree of Jesus stands as a glorious example of God's forgiveness and his mercy, his grace, and his wondrous love, and so do you and me. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what kind of messed up family you've had, if you're a believer, you're an example of God's grace. It's a declaration to the world that, the salv- that salvation is by God's divine grace. It's not the result of personal achievement, social standing, or who your family is. It's God's grace. And as I was putting this together, as I praying about this again this morning, going over these notes, I was just reminded again that our focus is not on the sordid details that we see in the lives of people in the lineage of Christ. That's not the focus. The focus is really on the greatness, the mercy, the compassion, and the goodness of the God who chose to love us, who chose to send His Son to be the propitiation for our sin, who chose to love us. Again, if you'll just permit a a personal thing. I remember I was a fifth grader. And I remember standing before the judge with mom and dad when dad adopted me. I remember two things. Judge wanted to know if I could spell my new last name, which I could. And then he gave me a 50-cent piece. Kind of cool. But you know what? My dad chose to love me and to give me his name. And in the grace of God, I look more like dad than my brother does, who's his biological son. That's the mercy and the grace of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but should have the life of the eternal one. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to do a work in us so that we look just like dad. Just like our father. Here's the bottom line. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how messed up your family is, God loves you. You're not disqualified. God had you and me in mind from the foundations of the world. And he made provision for us to be included in his plan of salvation. I've sat down with people who were raised in this community 
in a different community of faith than ours. Many of them were told from day after day after day, if they ever left that group, they would go to hell. And they chose to leave that group and not join that group. Well, let me just say it. Many Amish young people that I've talked to, they've told me that they were, they were told by their parents, if you ever leave the Amish, you're going to hell. We can't guarantee you'll go to heaven if you stay in the Amish church, but we know you'll go to hell if you leave. And do you know what happened? They left, and many of them just walked away from God because they determined that it was hopeless. They'd left. They were going to hell. There was nothing they could do. We look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see the lengths to which God would go to include broken, messed up, twisted, wicked humanity, people like you and me, so that we could be included in his glorious salvation. We just simply need to open our hearts and to receive him in our hearts. He's ready to forgive the sins. He's ready to heal the hurts of the past that you have carried. And like so many people, there are some of us here today, the hurts of the past control our present and control our future. My future is not defined by my past, but by my Father and His great mercy and love. The Savior's waiting. We just need to invite Him in. What better time that at this Christmas season we open our hearts to Him and say, Lord Jesus, come in. Heal all the hurts of the past. Forgive the guilt and the shame. Make me new. Make me clean. Make me yours. As Paul says to the Colossians, the mystery, the miracle of the faith is Christ in us, the hope of glory.